Stories Behind the White Coat. This is Grayscale. I'm Ben Davis. To quote Timbaland, it's been a long time since I left you. But we're back with a few more episodes of season two of Grayscale. Today, we welcome Carrie Rubenstein, faculty at Swedish First Health Family Medicine Residency and fellowship director for a geriatric fellowship program. Prior to joining us, Carrie worked at the Swedish Cherry Hill Family Medicine Residency Program and at Carolyn Downs Clinic, which is an FQHC in Seattle. And as always, certain names and details are changed to protect the identity of our patients. I'm really grateful for the opportunity to tell a little bit of Betty's story today and really about uh, how I am processing my role in her life. Uh, I I was her family physician for four years. Uh, It was an extreme pleasure uh, to be in that role. And Betty had a rough life. Betty was born and raised in Florida. She made it through the 11th grade. She was actually raised by an aunt and uncle because her parents were both alcoholics and weren't able to raise her. And then she, she also had you know, problems with alcohol herself early in life and had uh, some children that, that she never got to raise. And, you know, the interesting thing about Betty is that she, she didn't harp on these things. She didn't express huge, she expressed sadness, but, but didn't live with that regret day in and day out, at least in terms of what she expressed to me. And she lived her life, I think, from that point on, from best I can tell, with a goal of helping other people. That was her big thing. She loved to help other people. And she lived in, when she came to Seattle, in, I think, in the late 90s. Since then, she lived in one apartment building until, until she, she passed away. She lived the same apartment building for almost 20 years. And everyone knew her. Best I can tell, she was uh, the helper there. And in terms of how that played out, I would know how well Betty was doing if she told me that she was doing not just her own laundry, but also the laundry of other people in the building. She, she would do that for people. She would look out for people. And yet, she didn't have close family. She was never married, and she didn't have people that, that she could rely on when things got tough for her. And, and we knew this about Betty, and for the last several years, I've been working on trying to identify somebody who could speak for her, to be her surrogate decision maker if she was unable to make decisions for herself. And as many friends as she had in that apartment building, she, she didn't have anybody that she could step up and do that job for her. And that was important, especially when she got sick. She was uh, admitted to the hospital with a bad pneumonia, and she was septic. And she needed to be intubated, and for a short period of time, she was on pressors. And she 
she was stable. The team in the hospital was hopeful that she would get better. And she was on antibiotics and things were, were looking okay. And each day, we hoped that she would start looking better. And each day, she didn't. She continued to fail her spontaneous breathing trials and remained on the ventilator. And I was involved in her care in the hospital as her primary care provider, but the intensive care doctors were really in charge. And together, we were hopeful. We were hopeful that she was going to start looking better. We were hopeful that we were going to be able to wean off the ventilator. And we weren't able to do it. Day in and day out, we were hopeful that the next day was going to be the day that she was going to wean off the ventilator. And it became clear that we were going to need to make a decision. We were going to need to decide whether she got a trach and went to a long-term care setting that could handle her needs. Or we were going to withdraw her life support and see how she did. And typically, in these cases, we look to family. We look to close friends. We look to people who she has designated as those who can speak for her when she's unable to do so. And she didn't have anybody. She didn't have anybody for us to do that. And so. That was us. That was her care team. It was an opportunity to reflect on what Betty and I had talked about during some of these conversations prior. And she had told me, she said, I want you to try to help me if I get really sick. I'm okay with being on a ventilator, but I do not want a prolonged episode where I am on a a ventilator and have to go to a nursing home. That is not acceptable to me. And she was pretty clear and it was pretty clear in the, in the chart. And I brought that to the care team, the intensive care doctors and the rest of the care team. And even though it was this clear to her and in the chart, it was still incredibly difficult to try to speak for her in this case. She was in and out of alertness level, but she uh, was quite agitated at times due to her delirium. And so we really couldn't talk to her about what she wanted. And so really it was, it was us making, making the decision. We need to decide whether to put a tracheostomy tube in and send her to a nursing facility that could manage her with that tube and with a mechanical ventilator or to withdraw life support at that point and see how she did. We were all pretty sure that if we withdrew the life support, she wouldn't do well based on her uh, spontaneous breathing trials in the days prior. And, And so we picked a time and it was really intense. And you don't, it was just an an unusual experience for me to, to pick a time where basically someone would either live or die. And so 
We picked a Monday. We picked a time when I could be there when my clinic was done. And we picked a time when a resident who had been working closely with her and who cared a lot about how she was doing and and cared a lot about her could be there as well. And so Monday came around and she had failed that um, spontaneous breathing trial that day. And we made the decision to proceed with removing her ventilator support. Betty was alert. She was awake. And yet she still had some delirium from the illness that she was experiencing. And at baseline, she had some pretty significant memory problems. And so it was very hard to tell how much she understood. But I went in and talked to her and said, this ventilator is not helping you anymore. And we're going to remove the ventilator and see how you do and give you lots and lots of medication to help your breathing and make you comfortable. And she nodded her head, okay. And so we did. We took her breathing tube out. We had given her some medicine to at least make sure she was comfortable in this initial transition and put her on some high-flow oxygen via a nasal cannula. And we sat with her. We held her hand. This is me and one of the resident physicians who was very involved in her care. And we sat with her and we waited. Her care team in the ICU, most notably her nurses, were fantastic. They were working with us and looking at Betty and making sure she was comfortable. And we pulled up some chairs and we held her hand. And, you know, it was an unusual experience to be able to spend this time with a person. I felt really humbled to be there with her. And at the same time, I felt sad that she didn't have other family or friends that were there with her at the time. Betty, as I said, was a giving soul. She cut people's hair in the apartment building. She did people's laundry. She was looking to help others. And I just wondered why there wasn't anybody to be there with her during this important time for her. And I think that she, she, she knew, she knew she was awake. She was alert for a lot of this time until she got enough medications that she was not. And I think she really appreciated us being there. In fact, into the second hour that we were sitting with her, she had had her eyes closed for quite some time, and she opened her eyes kind of clearly and gave one of her very Betty smiles. Um, She was quite a character. And she gave one of her really classic smiles, and she, we think, she said thank you. And 
I just really felt very humbled to be sitting with her at that time. And all kinds of things went through my head during those hours. I thought at one point how similar it was as a family physician sitting in a room with a woman waiting for a baby to be born, attending to that person who may or may not, but often is in a bed like she was, attending to their symptoms, not really knowing how long the process would take. It was really interesting to me and and sort of you reflect especially being a family physician and being having the ultimate honor of being a part of both births and new life and deaths the end of life that this experience for me was so similar in some ways and obviously yet so different As we sat, we did not know how long the process would take, similar to waiting for a baby to be born. At one point, it was well past dinner time at my house, and I had to like connect with my family and say, just go ahead and eat dinner without me. I'm not going to make it home today for this. A very similar way to saying, like, hey, the baby's not born yet. (laughs) It's going to be a while. I made a lot of eye contact during the experience with this resident, and I think that we didn't exchange a whole lot of words, but sharing this experience with her, being present for Betty at a time when she didn't have other people to be there, was a really meaningful experience between the two of us. By no means was I teaching her during that time as the attending and her as the resident. But I think that shared experience and the raw emotion of being with someone in the time and the process of their death was an experience that taught me just so much about what it means to be human and to be a physician and to care so much for somebody. And I imagine, too, that uh, for this resident, she will walk away from this experience with a lot of lessons. As I sat, I thought about a program that exists, not at the hospital where I work, but at other hospitals called No One Dies Alone. And I believe that this program was started in Oregon by an ICU nurse. And it is not a national organization per se, but it is an organization that any individual can start at their own hospitals with the sole purpose of having volunteers to sit vigil with people as they are dying, in particular when they don't have other people to sit with them. And I thought about this program because that's what we were doing for Betty. We were sitting with her. We were being with her. We were holding her hands. We were stroking her legs. We were making sure that she was comfortable. And you know what? She was. She was comfortable. During the whole process, she was comfortable. And 
that's to the great credit of the nurses that were taking care of her, who were really expert in treating end-of-life symptoms as they occurred in this process. And as Betty's physician, I deeply cared about her symptom management at the end of life. And sitting there as somebody who cared about Betty, I, I cared in a different way, but also I cared so much that, that she didn't suffer. So we had been weaning down her oxygen as we were giving her medications to make sure she was comfortable. She got a lot of medications. And after the oxygen was weaned down, we made sure that we had turned off as many of the alarms that (laughs) were going off as possible just to create a sense of more sense of peace in the room. In fact, we, with the help of the intensive care nurse, turned Betty's bed towards the window. It was a beautiful day, and we thought that she would probably want to be facing the outside. And so her bed was facing the window, and we were sitting with her. And I was, again, so grateful how comfortable she looked and how at peace. And as we sat waiting, we we sort of wondered how long it would take. And then we started seeing a lot of the more classic signs. She had periods where she would stop breathing and then start breathing again. And it became clear that that was happening more frequently and that she was getting closer to her death. And then she just stopped breathing. And we sort of listened, watched her chest and listened, and, and she had died. And there was a sense of relief, I think, at that point. Uh, we knew this was happening. We knew this was going to happen. And I think the relief for me was just knowing that she didn't suffer. And the relief for me was also knowing that she wasn't going to have to live in a way that she didn't want to live. And yet, like all of these experiences, I think for us as humans, the finite nature of her death at the time was still really hard. So you mentioned two weeks. In medicine, we we have time points that don't have a lot of evidence to them. Other than being available, did anything else factor into when you would call it? Because that's a lot of responsibility, right? Because you're not only taking the role of a physician, but kind of like a next of kin or a family member that would make that decision. So did any of that affect your decision making other than just being a physician? Over the few days prior to that, I had had discussions with the ICU doctors, and it was pretty clear that she probably wasn't going to be successfully weaned off the ventilator. And as we got closer to two weeks, one of my main concerns was that she might survive, and, but not survive in a way that would be acceptable to her. And it was a very interesting thing because we were all 
pulling for her. We wanted her to get better. But I knew what was an acceptable quality of life to this fiercely independent woman. And she did not want to live with help and support. In fact, over the prior year before she was hospitalized, the nurses at my clinic and I were working with Betty to consider living in a place with more help. And she didn't want it. She wanted to live on her own. And because I knew this about Betty, I knew she wouldn't want to just survive. She would want to survive and be able to live on her own again. And with each day in the ICU, that was less and less likely. One of the things about being family medicine faculty is that we are constantly learning not only from our patients, but from our residents, from our colleagues. You mentioned that the resident you're working with must have been learning a lot just sitting there in that experience. Did you take anything away from that experience? Being present for important things in our patients' lives is probably one of the most, the greatest gifts that both we can give patients and they can give us. And so being present for Betty's death was a huge gift to me. And selfishly, it it helped me process her passing a little bit. It helped me feel like I was doing something for her when medically or the interventions I could offer medically weren't helping. And I think that the lesson I learned is any time you possibly can be present for particularly births and deaths, I think, as a family physician, you have to do your best to be there. And it's not always possible, but the benefit in terms of, I think, what our patients feel is huge. And then I think what we can take away from the experience as just human beings doing this intense job that we do every day, probably the biggest lesson that I will take. Grayscale is produced by Ben Davis. Thank you to Carrie Rubenstein for joining us today on the podcast and sharing her story. And as always, a big thank you to our patients who continue to enrich our lives through shared experiences. If you'd be interested in sharing your story, email us at thegrayscalepodcast at gmail.com.